Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And it's your last chance to get more fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this limited-time bundle ends June 30th. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to the Thursday, July 6th edition of PFT PM. Post wrapping up our third week of PFT Live hiatus. And people refer to this time off for me as a vacation. It's really not a vacation. I'm on vacation next week, although I'm contemplating very seriously doing PFT PM from our undisclosed location somewhere in the East Coast of the United States. I'll still be posting on PFT. It's so wired into what I do, I can't stop. It's a sickness. I acknowledge it. I embrace it. I own it. It's diagnosed, and the prognosis is negative. The prognosis is keep going until you die. And that is something I accepted years ago. I'm going to ride this horse until it dies under me or I die on top of it. We will continue, and we will go forward. And I appreciate the fact that some of you have expressed appreciation for the fact that we keep recording PFTPM videos and podcasts to keep you in your routine. Those of you who are used to hearing from me and from Chris Sims or Miles Simmons, Peter King, or Shereen Williams, you've got something you can listen to a full hour, many days, at least 35 minutes, most days, if not every day. So, I enjoy doing it. I enjoy being able to talk about whatever I want to talk about. I enjoy not having to shut up and let someone else talk. I just enjoy being able to go as long as I want to go. It's a test for me. I like to see how long I can go without screwing up. The over-under is usually five seconds. But nevertheless, I'm trying to get it to maybe seven seconds, maybe 10 seconds. A boy can dream. I also would like to use this opportunity. For those of you who are listening who are watching, and who appreciate the fact that I continue to work even when I'm not supposed to be working, at least not working at the same capacity I usually am. I haven't mentioned this on this platform yet, but look at, look at this beautiful addition to your library that you can have for the low cost of $13.97 on Amazon. $4.99 if you prefer to read the ebook. If you have Kindle Unlimited, you can read it free of charge. Father of mine. Mob Tale, set in 1973, based upon things that I learned and saw when my dad was a bookie for the mob in the town I grew up in, Wheeling, West Virginia. The mob was prevalent, came up with a completely fictional tale based on that background. And people like it. That's what surprised me. What what we do is, I want to get this, I'm not reflecting, I'm reflecting my my TV screen here. Here we go. uh, It surprises me because... What I write about on PFT is naturally conducive to people being upset. Why do you hate my team? Why do you hate this player? Why do you hate this coach? Can't say anything negative or you can't say anything that isn't over the top flowery positive without being perceived by someone as hating their favorite team coach or player. The feedback I've gotten on this has been surprisingly positive. People who have taken the time to read it, not just the people who use 
an opportunity to attack the book as an extension of the fact that they're pissed off because I said something they don't like or they don't like me or whatever. And that's okay. Look, if, if you don't have people who dislike you, you're doing something wrong. If everybody likes you or has no opinion of you, you're doing something wrong. You got to stir things up. You got to piss people off. You got to step on some toes. So, and if that means some people whose toes were stepped on will give me a bad review or whatever, Father of mine, I can, I can live with that. The feedback I've gotten directly from people who have read it has been positive. They enjoy it. They enjoy the experience. They want more. A sequel has been written. And what I'm in the process of doing now is going back and rewriting the whole damn thing. Because what I learn is I've written so much over the past three years. The early stuff I did, when I go back and look at it now, I look at it and I say, my God, this is horrible. So what's the way to fix it? Well, rewrite it. Because through seven or eight of these, I've gotten better at it. Like anything else, the more you do, the better you get. It's become my nighttime hobby since the pandemic. About June of 2020 is when I started. I've written seven. I've got an eighth one about halfway, maybe more than halfway done. And the later ones are much better than the earlier ones. Now, with Father of Mine, I went back and rewrote it last year after I had written it two years earlier. Son of Mine, the sequel, which I started into immediately after finishing the first one because I thought there was more story there. There was another adventure there. There was another roller coaster ride. And the story itself, I really like. The writing, I don't. So I'm in the process of rewriting it. At some point in the next year or two, it'll be available to you if you read Father of Mine and if you want to read the follow-up, or I'm trying to make it so it basically stands alone, that you don't necessarily have to have read Father of Mine to read and enjoy Son of Mine. But long story bearable before we get to the news of the day, and there is some news to talk about, even though it's still one of the slowest times of the year. If, if you're happy that this content's available, and I'll be shameless here, I'm a capitalist, I want as many people as possible to buy the book, read the book, enjoy the book. It's $13.97. It's a lot cheaper to get the ebook, $4.99. You can't get anything for $4.99 these days. But if you actually want to have something that you can put on your shelf somewhere or use as a, a doorstop or or you could you could threaten discipline with it, I'm kidding. Those days are over. Although when I was a kid, this is the kind of thing that, you know, if the wooden spoon wasn't around, this would be a good thing for a smack on the ass or elsewhere for being a smart aleck. I know that. All right, let's get to it. Here's one that I think is far more important and significant and consequential than the league would ever admit. And I have been pressing the league for something, some clarification on an aspect of the gambling policy that has been completely overlooked. And pardon me while I multitask here. I'm checking to see whether or not the league got back to me. I informed them that I was planning to talk about it at a podcast taping at 11 a.m. Eastern. I asked them again. I repeated my request from yesterday for some clarification. Section five of the NFL's gambling policy. NFL personnel, and that is broadly defined to include everyone that works for the league or the teams with the exception of the people who sell beer and programs and take tickets on game day. But for our purposes, it's all the people that 
that affect the game, the players, the coaches, executives, et cetera, people working for the league office, people on NFL Network. NFL personnel may not accept a complimentary room, service, or other gift from a gambling entity if its value exceeds $250. Any items accepted other than de minimis food and beverages generally offered to all patrons must be appropriately documented and verifiable upon request. Soliciting gifts of any value is never permissible. I don't know what that means. And this is a clear example of why I say the NFL's gambling policy reads like it was written by lawyers for lawyers. Non-lawyers don't use the phrase de minimis. That's Latin. Non-lawyers don't use Latin. The presence of the term de minimis in the gambling policy means they should tear the whole thing up and rewrite it, as multiple teams have done, to make it understandable to their staff, to their players, to anyone who would have to understand it. I don't know what this prohibits. I don't know what this permits specifically. I need examples. Because ultimately what I need to know is, where's the line? What does it mean to accept a complimentary room service or other gift from a gambling entity if the value exceeds $250? And apparently if it's less than $250, but it's more than de minimis, which means just basically here, here's the hors d'oeuvre tray or here's a, here's a beer or whatever. And it's available to everyone at a casino, a sports book, whatever, at times when NFL personnel are allowed to enter. You've got to document it and verify it on request which seems odd. The whole thing seems odd. The whole thing seems confusing. And here's the problem. I thought of this because I remembered seeing something like it when I saw Michael Rubin, the CEO of Fanatics, a growing sports book presence. Rubin's trying to take over the sports world, and that's his prerogative. He's gone from apparel into other things. They bought... I think Topps Trading Card Company, they want to be one stop for sports fans, for everything. And more power to them. Great aspiration. Take over the world. That's fine. But when you're going to start a sports book, and they already have a sports book, and Michael Rubin is the person ultimately in charge of the company that has the sports book, you're going to keep doing a July 4 party with an exclusive guest list featuring NFL players, like Odo Beckham Jr., Joe Burrow, C.J. Stroud, Devontae Adams, owners like Robert Kraft. If you're going to have NFL personnel at a party thrown by a CEO of a company that is trying to be one of the leading sports books in the country, and it's this very swanky, lavish, extravagant look at all the great time we're having. And please go feel bad about the shitty time you had on July 4. If they're going to do that, where is the line between de minimis, food and beverage, and de maximis, something that violates the policy? And... Will the league eventually identify the line and apply it? 
What happens if the league realizes, you know what, that policy probably applies to this party. That party probably goes too far. What would they do about that? See, they can do whatever they want. And because an owner is caught up in this one, look for them to do nothing. But this just speaks to the overall confusion, inconsistency, and hypocrisy of the rule. And I saw a couple of people on Twitter say I was snitching. And that, that's low-hanging fruit. Folks, the rule is in place. Don't some of these guys who've been suspended this year wish someone had snitched when there were examples of violations in the past and explained the rule and sought out clarity from the league so people would know what the rules are and what they aren't? That's all I'm trying to do. You got a rule on the books. A section of this eight-page policy that players didn't understand for an extended period of time. They now understand it's there. I don't know that they still understand exactly what it means, what it prohibits, what it allows, and why, because it sees the the league making millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions from these sports book sponsorships. If you're going to have this policy, it's got to mean something. There's got to be a line. Where's the line? Give me an example of what crosses the line. The rule book has a case book with examples of things that violate a rule or comply with the rule. What are the examples? Where are the examples? Will there ever be examples of what it takes to violate this provision? And what did the people who showed up at the swanky, exclusive, extravagant Michael Rubin party get? They have gift bags, swag bag, get some shoes, get some gear. Hope it was less than $250. And I'm waiting to see how the NFL tries to tie itself in knots to excuse whatever it was. See, that, that's the difference. And I'm getting back to my point. Because an owner is involved in this, I guarantee you, they're going to find a way to say whatever happened was fine. They'll come up with some excuse. Well, Fanatics didn't throw the party. Michael Rubin did. I bet you Fanatics paid for it. I bet you it's a write-off for Fanatics. And if it's not, Rubin's not nearly as good of a businessman as I thought. Because if if a dumbass like me can figure out when you have people over to your house for a work-related event, you make your company pay for it. I hope I'm not admitting to any, <laughs> any potential tax issues. But I think it's perfectly legitimate when you're having an event where you are entertaining people you work with and the whole purpose of the thing is to advance your brand. And, and when I have people here from NBC, we talk about business. And so it is a proper write-off. I I don't, I don't really want to be audited, but my point is this. When it came to players violating the gambling policy, it was shoot first and never ask questions. It was, we've got you, and this is what we're going to do. And if you fight it, it's only going to be worse. That was the general message. With this, the saving grace was the presence of Robert Kraft. Because the NFL is not going to do anything about this. And if if the NFL does anything, it'll be to say, we've clarified the policy. And for future reference, now that Michael Rubin has a sports book, you know, in the past it was fine. But now that he has a sports book under the Fanatics umbrella, this is something that in the future 
we would suggest that players and owners don't attend. If they even go that far. I think it will be something that they choose to ignore. And I know that because what, what was the reaction when I asked them about it? Crickets. And I asked them about something else yesterday and they responded. Same person. Same person. I'll get to that coming up. So it's not that I'm on the pay no mind list. They put me on the selective pay no mind list when they just don't want to deal with the question that I've asked. And it is such a low tech way to try to avoid someone. And the problem is sometimes it works because what happens is I'll ask once and I go back about my business. And if I remember the next day or the day after that they didn't respond, I'll ask again and I'll go back about my business and I'm forced to remember the next day or the day after that they haven't responded. So eventually I ask again. And usually the third time is a charm. It either gets me a real answer or a no comment. I'm going to keep on this one. Because I think they know that these words written by lawyers for lawyers are potentially being violated by players and one owner by attending this 4th of July party that you know it when you see it. Whatever you call it, having a ticket to this party and eating whatever you ate and drinking whatever you drank and being entertained by whoever was there and the fireworks display that was private for the $50 million home on the Hamptons where Michael Rubin had the party, whatever it is, it's on the wrong side of this. It, it doesn't mesh with the spirit of a rule that says NFL personnel may not accept a complimentary room service or other gift from a gambling entity if its value exceeds $250. Whatever those folks got on Tuesday, you couldn't buy for $250. I'm not going to hold my breath or any other involuntary bodily function, frankly, as I wait for an answer from the NFL, but I'm going to keep pressing People deserve to know what the rules are. The players deserve to know what the rules are. Everyone needs to know what they are. If this kind of clarity had been available two years ago, maybe the 10 guys who have been suspended since 2021 wouldn't have been. And if the NFL is going to have this policy, and if the NFL is going to profit from gambling, somebody needs to be saying, hey, folks, what are you doing here? What do these rules mean? Why do you have these rules? How do they apply? Who's violating? Who's not? Are you... Are you aggressively investigating and enforcing or are you just sitting there waiting for the easiest, this is a point I've made in the past, the easiest violations to fall out of the sky because the sports books are ratting out the players. That's an interesting concept. Players who went to Michael Rubin's party are at risk of being ratted out by Michael Rubin's company to the NFL if they happen to use their cell phone device to bet on NFL football or an NFL event, or, or more importantly, to bet on other sports where it's legal to do so if they're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Another gambling issue that I'm fascinated by, and I've asked the union for this. I shouldn't be the one who's at the cutting edge of figuring all this stuff out, folks. I really shouldn't be. You got a lot of people sitting around with their thumbs up their butts when it comes to gambling. A lot of people whose job it should be to figure this stuff out and make sure everyone knows the rules and make sure they're complying with it. I, I just fear the damage that could be done if there's a major scandal. So let's try to avoid the scandal. 
You know how you avoid the scandal? You make sure everybody understands the rules and complies with them. So you don't have these violations that pop up and everybody's like, oh, well, I never envisioned that. Well, you should have. What are agents allowed to do when it comes to gambling, when it comes to betting, when it comes to the handling of inside information? We've talked in the past about the NFL's rule against the use of inside information for NFL personnel, but agents are not NFL personnel. Agents are separate from the NFL, but they're subject to NFLPA regulations. What are the rules in place for agents who would wager, agents who would acquire inside information and either use it for their own purposes or trade favors with others or sell it to others? I'll give you a relevant example right now, going on right now. We don't know where Dalvin Cook's going to sign. We don't know. When he picks a team, will it affect the betting markets? It should. If he goes to the Jets or the Dolphins, will it affect the over-under win total? Their odds for winning the AFC East? It should. Would knowing that information before the market changes be useful to people who would be inclined to put a wager on it? If you know Dalvin Cook is going to the Jets before anyone else knows, and you can make that bet before the market adjusts, doesn't matter whether or not the bet ultimately prevails. What matters is having the information and acting on it before the market moves. You get a bet today at a better value than it would be tomorrow once we know what Dalvin Cook's going to sign. I'm not saying that Dalvin Cook is going to sign tomorrow. I'm just using the example. Whenever the day comes, the agent's going to know before the rest of us know. What is the agent allowed to do with that information? Who is the agent allowed to share it with? Who is the agent allowed to give it to? What is the agent allowed to do with it? And would it be permissible for the agent to to sell it to somebody? Hey, you want to know what Dalvin Cook's going to do? I'll tell you, but there's a price. Now, that would be a pretty blatant violation of just our general sense of right and wrong, but is there a rule out there? That applies, that's what we're trying to find out. But that's the other side of this inside information coin agents have. It. And and some reporters have it too. Now, the NFL network reporters, NFL media insiders are all subject to the NFL's gambling policy. I don't know what the rules are at ESPN, but you got people there that know things before the rest of us do that could act on inside information. Where and how does all of this fit within the broader concerns for anyone who cares about the NFL for the possibility of something happening that undermines the general public's faith and confidence in professional football? That, that's why I keep pushing this. Like, this isn't the kind of thing that's going to bring up a lot of views and generate a lot of clicks, but it's the right thing to do because somebody needs to be saying, what are we doing here? And are we doing enough to avoid a situation where something brown and smelly hits the fan? 
Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I was interested in Mike Vick's comments about Andy Reid. I heard them when I watched the full 84-minute interview of Vick on the Tyreek Hill podcast, It Needed to Be Set. I was focused on other things he said, though, and I didn't make a note to circle back to it. I saw yesterday that USA Today, one of their team-specific sites, had written about it. So instead of pulling up the podcast and finding the quote and pretending I got no assist whatsoever from whoever it was at USA Today that wrote the story. I ran the link to it. That's the right thing to do. And I say that because plenty of times I see where people will see our stories on something where there's quotes from a podcast and it happened with this Vic thing. And it may have been somebody from USA Today. Just copies and pastes our typing up of the quote. Doesn't even go look at it. Just copies and pastes our typing up of the quote. And and that's fine. Look, he said what he said. But if you got it from us, you know, know, help somebody out here. Throw a little link like we did to the USA Today site. But Vic suggested that Andy Reid might be the greatest coach of all time. And at first blush, you look at it and say, nah, Andy Reid's still got more work to do. I don't know how much more work he has to do, though. And when you look at where he is and where his team is and where you look at where Bill Belichick is and where his team is, man, Andy Reid may not be there yet, but Andy Reid may catch him. First of all, Andy Reid's six years younger. That's six football seasons. That's another 60 wins. You give him another 60 wins, he's ahead of where Bill Belichick is right now in regular season victories. And, and 60, that's 10, 10 and 7. Do we really think the Chiefs are going to be 10 and 7, 10 and 7, 10 and 7? And you get to the postseason, you got Patrick Mahomes. He's only getting better, folks. He's on the front end of his prime. How long is his prime going to last? Since Bill Belichick last won a Super Bowl, since Bill Belichick last won a postseason game, 
Andy Reid has been to the Super Bowl three times. Think about that. Bill Belichick won Super Bowl 53. He hasn't won a playoff game since then. Andy Reid won Super Bowl 54, went to Super Bowl 55, won Super Bowl 57. Should have gone to Super Bowl 56 and maybe would have won Super Bowl 56. They were up big over the Bengals in the first half and blew it. That doesn't exactly help Reed's case, but the body of work does and where it's going. That's the key. Where's this going? Regardless of where we are right now, and you could argue when you look at Brady, Belichick, 19 years together, Belichick benefiting from the greatest quarterback of all time for 19 years. Reed has had a bunch of guys play quarterback, and he's made a bunch of guys into better quarterbacks. And, hey, between the two, if I have a quarterback I need to develop, it's a no-brainer. I'm taking Reed over Belichick. If I have a team that I need to coach, okay, Belichick. But if I have a quarterback I need to develop, give me Reed. And it may be, it may be, by the time it's all said and done, if I have a team to coach, it may be Reed. Mahomes trying to catch Brady gets so much of our focus. Can he get to seven? You know, it should be six versus three, not seven versus two, because Mahomes had a chance to beat Brady in Super Bowl 55, and it just made the the gap even bigger. The gap's already smaller between Belichick and Reed. Belichick's got six, and don't tell me he's got eight. I'm Assistant coach Super Bowl rings don't count for something like this. It's how many you've won as the head coach. Belichick has six. Reed has two. And he's gotten them in the last four seasons. And he's been to three of the last four Super Bowls. And he's got the best quarterback right now in the NFL and possibly the guy who will become the GOAT. And really, if Mahomes wins enough to become the GOAT, he's taken Reed with him if Reed stays. And why would Reed go? There was something that bubbled up before this most recent Super Bowl about the possibility of Reed doing the Bill Walsh win and walk off into the sunset. Why would Reed do it? As long as he's healthy enough to to coach and he's 65, why would you walk away from a guy that is going to carry you to the upper room of the Hall of Fame. He's already in the Deion Sanders upper room of the Hall of Fame. Mahomes, on his way potentially to the top of the mountain, is going to take Reed there. And there's a chance that when it's all said and done, Mahomes isn't the GOAT, but Reed is. That's possible. I mean, if they get to six, if that's how many they win, over the course of their mutual time with the Chiefs. Reed ties Belichick and probably has as many, if not more, wins than Belichick. Who knows? But if Reed gets to six, mm-hmm-hmm. Mahomes still not the GOAT. Reed maybe the GOAT. Co-GOAT at worst. I, I hadn't thought of that until Vic said what he said. And again, we're so caught up in players chasing other players for legacies. Hadn't thought about Reed. I mean, we just assumed that Belichick's one of the greatest of all time, and maybe he is. But, you know, here's the thing. Once Brady leaves and reality sets in and you make a career defensive coach or offensive coordinator. Now, look, Reed once made 
a career offensive line coach, his defensive coordinator didn't work out very well. But the gap is closer than I think people would admit. And it's only going to get closer if the Patriots don't snap out of it and if the Chiefs keep doing what the Chiefs have been doing. D. Smith, the outgoing NFL PA executive director, wrote a law review article for the Yale Journal on Law and Policy. And he advocates for the scrapping of the Rooney Rule. And his argument is, put simply, that the Rooney Rule isn't effective. It's never really been effective. It hasn't changed anything. And that the NFL should instead embrace other strategies for ensuring appropriate diversity and fairness in the hiring of coaches and other key employees. And I know plenty of things in our world today are the subject of fair debate. There is no fair debate that the NFL has not had a very good track record at all when it comes to the hiring of minority assistant coaches into head coaching positions. Troy Vincent, the NFL's executive VP of football operations, said so when the Brian Flores lawsuit was filed. The problem is there's no mechanism to force the NFL to change. The Rooney Rule is just window dressing. It's easily ignored. It's easily navigated around. Check a box. Check a box. Still hire who you want. doesn't force anybody to hire anyone. It just requires you to give the minority candidate the in-person interview, comply with the rule, and still do what you want. There needs to be steps taken that will intervene and delay and possibly derail that momentum that the owner already has developed by deciding weeks, if not months, before creating the vacancy, this is who I want to hire. That happens all too often. That's what needs to be rectified. But as D. Smith points out in the article, there's nothing in place to force the league to do it. There's no governmental oversight of the NFL. Even though the NFL has broadcast antitrust exemption, NFL teams get billions in taxpayer money to build stadiums. There's no governmental oversight of the NFL. There's no corporate oversight of the NFL. There's no shareholder. There's no board of directors. These are individual mom and pop businesses that do whatever the hell they want. So there's no internal oversight. There's no external oversight. All we really have is the civil justice system. And the problem is any of the coaches who are unhappy with what they believe would be a, a failure to be treated fairly and properly and within compliance of applicable civil rights laws, well, they've signed that arbitration clause. Take it or leave it. Contract of adhesion, as the lawyers would call it. And even if you ultimately get to court and get your opportunity to prove that you were right and they were wrong, they're going to bog the case down for multiple years on this question of whether or not you've got to go to arbitration. John Gruden's lawsuit. 
filed November of 2021, still stuck on the question of whether or not he's going to have to go to arbitration. Brian Flores' lawsuit filed February 1, 2022, still stuck on the question of arbitration. So the NFL has everything rigged in its favor and stacked in its favor to avoid meaningful change. And I agree with D. Smith completely. The Rooney rule is useless. If it ever had a purpose, it's outlived it. It's not going to fix the deeper problem that manifested itself in the Flores litigation. And again, the NFL has acknowledged there's a problem. How do you force the oligarchs to change their behavior? And the recommendations in D. Smith's article, and we've got a post at PFT. I'll defer to the post, mainly because I can't remember all of them, but they're good. They're good. One of them is, let's minimize nepotism. It's worth checking out. And this is where I heard back from the NFL yesterday. I had asked last week after the Supreme Court decision that affects in a dramatic way affirmative action in the educational setting, whether or not the Rooney Rule would be impacted as a result of it. Because there's a belief that the mindset articulated in the Supreme Court decision on affirmative action eventually is going to trickle over to any affirmative action programs, any efforts to try to rectify the inherent imbalance that existed for decades, if not centuries, for the majority race, trying to even it out, trying to make up for what's happened in the past. I asked the NFL about it last week. I was told to get back to me. I asked about it yesterday, and I was sent a memo that was sent to all league employees after the ruling last Thursday. NFL family, in light of the public interest in today's Supreme Court decisions and possible speculation about their scope and application in other business settings, we want to be clear about the NFL's commitment. Our dedication to the fundamental principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion remain unchanged. We will not pause in pursuing our policies and programs that are designed to create a level playing field to ensure that diverse voices are heard and respected and to hire, promote, and develop leaders who represent the full spectrum of America. We will continue working with each of you, the 32 clubs and colleagues outside the league, to make the NFL a leading organization that models an exclusive, inclusive, excuse me, respectful and supportive workplace for everyone. We have seen the power of opportunity when it is placed in someone's hands. We know the power of inclusion, and the inestimable value of having diverse voices actively involved in decision-making throughout the league. Boy, it's hard, to, it's hard to read that and not think about Jim Trotter's concerns that caused or contributed to him not having a job with NFL Network. That's an aside, by the way. That's not a continuation of the quote. And we have seen the extraordinary results of a shared mission with the players and clubs to create positive change in underserved and underrepresented communities across the country. Like the game of football, we strive to be a unifying organization that brings people together with a commitment to equity and appreciation of difference. Thus, on all these fronts and more, our commitment will never waver. Our work will never, our work will, excuse me, continue unabated and our focus will be on continuing our progress. That's what was sent last Thursday. Now, that's fine for now, but as more Supreme Court decisions or court decisions from lower courts, appeals courts, district courts that attack policies. Maybe there'll be a lawsuit at some point attacking the Rooney Rule. I don't know. But further changes to the law could affect what the NFL wants to do. And a lot of those words just ring hollow because we know about the failure. Again, it's not disputed. 
Troy Vincent admitted it after Brian Flores filed his lawsuit. He admitted it. It's very easy to have a policy that just requires owners to check a box and check a box, and then they can say, hey, we're doing all we can, when the numbers show otherwise, the statistics show otherwise. As I said after the Flores lawsuit was filed, if you flip a coin 500 times and it comes up heads 499 times, there's something wrong with the coin. For the NFL, there's something wrong with the coin. But the league has no effective way or desire, I believe, to fix it. They want to say all the right things, but they, want to, they don't want to do what they have to do because that's going to make too many waves with the oligarchs. And the next thing you know, you're Faye Vincent. And they decide to find a different commissioner. It takes a real commitment to change. And my prediction is, for all the good ideas articulated by DeMora Smith, the only way things are going to change is if there is governmental oversight or some sort of intervention external to the NFL that forces the NFL to change or a lawsuit that, that hits the bullseye, that avoids arbitration, goes to open court, no settlement, no secret hiding of discovery information or testimony. Everything ends up out in the open. Everything plays out in open court and everybody says, holy crap. This is a mess. They better clean it up. And maybe that'll happen in my lifetime. Or maybe not. Another thing that may happen in my lifetime, and that may be coming sooner than we realize, there was an item in the Financial Times that I noticed in Sports Business Journal's closing bell on Wednesday about Saudi Arabia creating a subset to its broader public investment fund of $650 billion that is focused solely on sports. And they have aspirations to expand their footprint in soccer, tennis, and other sports. And I've said all along, anything about what Saudi Arabia does or doesn't do when it relates to football first depends on what it wants to do. What does it want to do? And hey, to the extent that this is all what they call sports washing, Mesa's barking, somebody's delivering something. If this is all about sports washing, the best way to wash is with the fire hose of the NFL. So let's assume they're going to want to get into the NFL. It goes one of two ways. One, they show up with enough money to get the NFL to ignore and or change its rules regarding foreign ownership, whether of a minority of a team or all of a team. And they're one of the entities that could show up if they so desire and plunk down the cash to buy 100% of a team, no questions asked, and have all the money available to go about financing, free agency acquisitions, et cetera, without question. If, if you're a fan of a team, you would probably want the Saudi Arabia sports division of the public investment fund to own your team because money won't be an issue. Spending won't be an issue. The salary cap, yes, but the money won't be. The budget will be, we're going to spend whatever we have to spend on coaches, on GMs, on everything. We're going to do it right. Because if you truly want to do it, especially if you're going to be in a competitive environment like that, you want your team to win. Sports washing doesn't work if your team is washed out. And if the NFL won't go along with it, what happens next? That's where it gets interesting. That's where it becomes potentially existential for the NFL. 
would Saudi Arabia create a competitor to the NFL and offer more money, far more money than players could get. And look, there would be players under contract that would be stuck, but incoming draft picks, they're not under contract. They can go wherever they want. And free agents, folks who don't have a contract, Saquon Barkley right now could sign with any other professional league he wants to, with no penalty. He's not under contract with the Giants. Same as Josh Jacobs. Offering big money, like the USFL did to attract some great players, but the USFL wasn't competing with the NFL during football season. This would be the first time since the AFL that you have football season, football money, and then some if they don't let Saudi Arabia in. I think the smart move by the NFL would be, and I know it's hard because they're not very proactive at 345 Park Avenue, but the smart move would be, let's find a way to let them in. If they want into football, we got to let them in because the last thing we want is for them to set up a league that competes with us because they got the money to do it. They got the money to get our players. They got the money to get our coaches. The question is, what kind of TV contracts would they get? Because anyone who does business with live football or whatever they would call it would be burning the bridge back to the NFL, at least for 10, 15, 20 years. You know, time and money will heal all wounds, but you're making a, a business calculation if you do business with the competitor of the NFL. But hey. If they're not insisting on huge money for their rights fees in order to just get on the air, and they're going to have some of the best players in football, and they're going to snag some of the top incoming draft picks, Caleb Williams, if they would set it up quickly. I don't know how long it would take to set it up, but the more money you got, the faster things like that move. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Question time. PFTPM Posse. Why doesn't the NFL and HBO just have the Cowboys do hard knocks every year? Jerry loves it. It would do better ratings than most all other teams, and the boys are usually interesting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. 
There's got to be a reason for it. I think some of these other teams want to do it. They think that it's a piece of the puzzle necessary to establish a national brand. Although, I don't know, if the Cowboys wanted to do it this year, it would already be the Cowboys, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it already be the Cowboys? Because they're already looking for volunteers. I think they really want the Jets to wake up on their own and recognize they just need to hold their nose and take their medicine. But based on what Mark Murphy, the Packers CEO, said over the weekend in his column at Packers.com, it sure sounds like they're locked onto the Jets. I don't know that the Cowboys would be interesting every year, every year, every year. And look, I'm I'm one of those who believe that like the Rooney rule, hard knocks has outlived its usefulness. There's plenty of access. There's plenty of information. I don't glean a whole lot from those episodes that make me say, wow, I learned something about the NFL that I didn't already know. And And I know that part of that is because I follow it every day in multiple different ways. But I think the average fan nowadays is far more knowledgeable than the average fan 20 years ago when they started Hard Knocks. Here's a question that's popped up a couple of times, and I better go ahead and answer it. And this is one of those stealth Twitter handles that if you say it, you're stepping into something that's going to make someone with, you know, the mindset of an eight-year-old like me giggle. The Jets and or the Giants both have the option to file a one-year notice of intent to opt out of their MetLife Stadium lease next year. Any chatter on this front, given the massively negative reputation that MetLife has in the eyes of the public? I don't know that that's the case. I haven't seen that. If I ever knew it, I've forgotten it. There's no talk whatsoever about a new stadium for the Jets or Giants, and they would not move out of New York City. That would not be an option to leave New York City to leave the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area. I don't think that's going to happen. Dalip Rao, there was some discussion I heard as to why Sean Payton is given so much more respect than Mike McCarthy by me as well when their overall records are very, very similar as well as their dependence on Hall of Fame quarterbacks. Is there a chance with Wilson, Sean Payton fails? Or is it simply he fails without Drew Brees? The difference between Peyton and McCarthy is very simple. And I'll go back to the play that ended the 2021 season against the 49ers in the playoffs. Wild card round, I believe it was. They have the ball at around the 40. I think it was around midfield. They opt for a quarterback draw to try to get close enough for a realistic shot at the end zone. Around the 30-yard line, you got a realistic shot at the end zone. It's not a Hail Mary at that point. So they run the play. Dak Prescott runs the draw. He slides. He gets up. He and the center get in position. The umpire has to touch the ball physically. The umpire runs down the field. They don't get out of his way. He has to jostle to get through. He touches the ball. He sets it. By the time all of that happens, they run out of time. And there was plenty of discussion and deconstruction of exactly what went wrong. And the bottom line is it was a failure of attention to detail in the planning, design, and execution. And I think we asked C.D. Lamb at the Super Bowl that year, when you practiced it, did someone play the role of the official? Because you have to account for that. It's not enough to just slide, pop up, center gets on the ball, snaps it to the quarterback, and he spikes it with one second left. What you have to do is factor in the reality the umpire has to get in position, put his hands on the ball before the center can snap it. 
Mike McCarthy didn't think of that. Sean Payton wouldn't think of that. That's the difference between the two of them. I could go on, but that's the difference. Based upon my own experience, my own knowledge, McCarthy didn't think of it. Payton would have thought of it. And his team would have done it. His team would have executed it that way. Mark, when can we expect to see PFT on threads? We're already there, baby. I saw it yesterday. Pat McAfee tweeted the link. I clicked on the link. I started to investigate. Hey, this is easy. It's an extension of Instagram. Boom. We've had an Instagram account for years. We set it up. There we are. Already verified on threads. Nearly 7,000 followers when I checked a little while ago. So check us out on threads. We're staying on Twitter. We're not leaving Twitter. We fish where the fish are. The fish are at Twitter and the fish are at threads. And it gives us a way to post a link to our content with an explanation of what it is to try to get people to read it. That's all we're trying to do. We're trying to get you to sample an item from the menu. And as always, it is free and remains free. Dalip Rao, I'm in London. What is the absolute maximum one should pay at a fancy cigar bar for a single stick? I don't know because I've never gone to a fancy cigar bar and purchased a single stick because I got my own. Not fancy. I got my barn. I stay home. I don't go out and smoke everybody else's cigar. I just want to smoke mine. I don't want to smoke everybody else's. I'm fine with just smoking mine. I bought some Padrones recently that were about 35 a stick. And I felt a little guilty about it. And I... I I, I it, it's 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 too big of a cigar. It's too long of a smoke. Uh, my my go to is a Padron 1964 series that is the same diameter circumference of a bigger cigar, but it's about it's about like that. Fantasy every day. You have mentioned the inevitability of expansion to 40 teams eventually, but how and when do we get there? Will it be in the near future? And will it be two teams at a time? Well, you know what? One way to get there is for <laughs> the Saudis to set up an eight-team league to go buy up a bunch of superstars, buy up a bunch of coaches, and force a merger. 32 plus eight is 40. That's a way to get to 40. And that would be the real question. If the Saudis would set something up, how many teams would they have right out of the gates? And if it's eight, and if it's not in cities where the NFL currently is, and if it's in London, if I'm the NFL, look, I, I worry about everything anyway. If I'm the NFL, I'd be very worried about my gambling policy, and I'd be very worried about Saudi Arabia right now. Johnny Sena, any Cowboys news to share, and why is ESPN laying off people? First part, no. Second part, watch yesterday's show. John Kasich, can you explain what the term cap hit actually means? Assuming you're not being sarcastic, I'll go ahead and explain it. And I'll try to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. The cap hit is the charge that applies to the team's salary cap when it trades or cuts a player who still has unallocated bonus money on his contract, whether it's signing bonus, restructuring bonus, option bonus, any type of payment that gets spread out over multiple years to reduce the current year cap hit. That money that goes to the future years comes back and hits the cap. That's the cap hit when someone is traded or released. Now, 
cap hit also gets referred to as the cap charge for a team that a player has in a given year. His compensation for this year plus other payments from past years that are prorated over time. But I'm assuming you mean cap hit when someone goes. That's the explanation of what a cap hit is when someone goes, and June 1 is a key date. If you trade someone after June 1, you don't have any additional cap charge beyond what you already would have had for bonus money that applies to this year. If you do it before June 1, it's this year's bonus allocations, whether signing, option, restructuring, and all future unallocated signing bonus, it all comes back to this year. It doesn't cost money. The money's already been paid, but it eats away at your cap space. And you've got to figure out how to manage it. I hope I explained it efficiently, and there's a good chance I didn't. David Mitchell, you say you would take Patrick Holmes right now over any quarterback at their peak. Assuming ability correlates to future success, you said all four, you said for all of Aaron Rodgers' ability, it's a disappointment that he has one Super Bowl win. If ability extrapolates to expectations, how many Super Bowls does Mahomes need to win to be a success? I mean, he already is. He's already more successful than most quarterbacks. There aren't many quarterbacks out there that have two wins in the Super Bowl. He's got three appearances and two wins, and he's been a starter for five years. I think he's already a success. I think he's already upper room Deion Sanders wing of Canton. We just sit back and see how many more. But to the chagrin of the other 31 franchises, there's probably going to be more. Jerry Arco, what would be a market for Bill Belichick, assuming the Patriots decide after this year to move on? In your educated opinion, where would his preferred destination be? There's always been a thought he'd want to coach the Giants. You know, the problem, though, is if he goes somewhere else, because there was some noise a few years ago when everything went down with Tom Brady and Jimmy Garoppolo and Seth Wickersham had that story about having palace intrigue and stuff going on behind the scenes. And I think it was Gary Myers who did a quick drive-by and suggested that Bill Belichick would like to go coach the Giants. Someone pointed out to me, and this makes a lot of sense, it's going to take five years or so to, to get to where Belichick would want to be with a new team. And I think one thing he's probably learned, better go somewhere where you got a pretty good quarterback. That's the key. Dan Mushman. Good afternoon from London. Does your disrespect of Sean McVay, still the youngest head coach in the NFL, stem from your hatred of the Rams franchise in general or for other reasons? What does he need to do to earn your respect? Are there eight-plus teams that wouldn't hire him in a second? I think I found Miles Simmons' burner account. London, my ass. I know they won the Super Bowl. They went all in. They made a hell of a bet. And look at what happened. And they almost didn't win that Super Bowl. Jalen Ramsey fell down on that play where Jamar Chase, game-winning touchdown, if Aaron Donald doesn't wreak havoc. And Aaron Donald wasn't an F-them-picks guy. He was a guy that was one of their first-round picks. That's a great irony of this Rams team that was founded on the notion of swapping out your first-round picks for established players. The main reason they won the game at the end of the day was the guy who should have been the MVP. Aaron Donald's performance, and he was a first-round pick they used. Their second first-round pick that year, they blew the first one on Cam Robinson. Was that his name? The second overall pick from Auburn? Disaster of an offensive lineman? 
It was their second first-round pick that year. One of the years they had multiple first-round picks because of the RG3 trade that they got the guy that ultimately delivered the Super Bowl win. Look, McVay is one of the better coaches in the NFL. Is he a guy who instantly finds another job if he's fired? There would probably be some other owner out there that would just hire him for the sizzle. His name didn't come up when I was listing the coaches the other day that would instantly find other work if they were fired. And I don't know that I'd put him in that category, although if I recognize what motivates NFL owners, he probably would land on his feet right away somewhere else. And he probably would spark some owner out there to get antsy enough to fire his current coach to go get Sean McVay. But that's mainly a fault of of ownership because I don't think that McVay is as high on the list of great coaches as others would say, as evidenced by what happened last year and as evidenced by this fact that he always seems to already be perpetually on the edge of burning out. Look, you can't sprint through your 30s and expect to survive through your 40s and 50s. The fact that he's already dealing with this issue of when do I walk away and I think would have walked away after the 2022 season if he could have gotten 15 to 20 million per year to go work a media gig and that money wasn't there. Once he realized it wasn't there and once he really caught the blowback from his team and from the outside that he was escaping, that he was doing the Indiana Jones slide under the door and reach back and grab your hat before the stone falls. Once he got shamed into staying, that's when he decided to stay. We'll see how this year goes. We'll see if he's truly rejuvenated and we'll see if he sticks around beyond that. But longevity and commitment. I mean, is it enough to just show up, burn bright, win a Super Bowl and fizzle out? I want a coach that's going to be around for years and years and years. That's going to be the anchor, the core, the guiding light of my football program that isn't mortgaging the future excessively to try to grab that brass ring and then go run away. Let's do this. I'm checking out threads here. Here's the threads app. We asked for some questions. I'm going to give some equal time before I wrap this up. Been going in hour almost already. Let's just do a little bit more. Looking at threads. Got some questions on threads. Full season prediction for the 49ers. That's from George the Don. I think the 49ers are capable to get to the Super Bowl and win it. It all comes down to quarterback play. Will Brock Purdy continue to play like he did last year and will he stay healthy? And if he would get injured, will Sam Darnold come in and get it done? And if he would get injured, can they count on Trey Lance? Do they have some sort of weird curse when it comes to quarterbacks? Because the team is otherwise good enough to compete at a very high level. It's them and the 49, them and the Eagles, excuse me, in the NFC. If they can keep their core players healthy and get consistent quarterback play, the sky is the limit for the 49ers. I'm not going to predict a Super Bowl win yet, but they are in that small cluster of teams that I think could win the Super Bowl. Josh and Tosh Bryan. Which NFL team will most likely get Caleb Williams? I'm leaning toward the commanders. I, I don't know, because right now it feels like the Cardinals are trying to position themselves for the first overall pick. And I'm intrigued by the possibility that Caleb Williams will say, no, thank you. I'll either stay at USC for another year or and make, you know, five, six, seven million in NIL money, or I'll sit out a year with my NIL money that I've made with no compulsion to go sign with the Cardinals. I, I don't know what about the Cardinals right now would give a guy with options the desire to go be there when he could maybe try to force his way to a 
a team that seems to be. Why do you hate the Cardinals? Hey, Cardinals fans, as I said before, I'm trying to make your team better. Hold them accountable for the fact that they're dysfunctional right now. They've claimed the crown from the Texans as the most dysfunctional team in the league. You should want that to change, and I'm trying to help it change. All right. Rob Baldwin reigns. What are the chances DeAndre Hopkins sits out the season if he doesn't get an offer he likes? What team is he supposedly leaning towards playing for? I I don't know what his cutoff is. I'd say for most veteran players that have made good money, there's a minimum under which they just say, it's not worth it. I'm not playing. I don't know that he would sit out the whole season. Maybe he would just sit and wait. Like if I'm not going to get paid a lot of money, I'm going to wait for the contenders to really declare themselves. And I'm going to go jump on a bandwagon and try to win a championship and play into December and February and January, excuse me, and February deep into the postseason and go get paid a lot of money next year. Cause people are saying, wow, look at, look at what DeAndre Hopkins did in the Super Bowl." I don't think he sits out the whole year. I think that's a very, very low chance for Hopkins. I think right now what he's doing is feeling no compulsion to rush into an arrangement, waiting for someone else to offer more than whatever the Titans or the Patriots are willing to pay. The question becomes, does he wait once training camp starts to avoid training camp? I mean, we've heard he doesn't like to practice. If you're not on a team, you're not going to be practicing in training camp. But somebody gets injured or somebody's not as effective as they thought he was going to be, then all of a sudden there's a market that may not be there now. Another one. Rob Baldwin reigns again. What are the expectations for Sean McDermott this season after the Bills took a step back in 2022? I think there's a lot of pressure on the Bills this year, and I think they're doing their best to try to reduce it. I think these extensions were aimed at reducing the pressure. When I saw that Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean both got extensions, first thing I thought of last year, hey, Steve Kime and Cliff Kingsbury both got extensions even longer into the future then the Bean and McDermott extensions a year later. Kime and Kingsbury through 2027. And they were like, go after one year. I just think that, and it all comes down to what ownership is willing to tolerate. But when you have Josh Allen, you can only get away with knocking on the door for so many years before failure to kick it in results in ownership trying to find somebody else who will. And, and I know that folks in Buffalo get nervous when I say that, but it's true. Got to wrap this up. CP7 New York. Do you see Matt Ariza getting signed before his civil lawsuit is settled? HBO Real Sports with Brian Gumble had a segment on Ariza recently. And after the segment, Andrea Kramer told Gumble that she thinks he's going to be signed by a practice squad. He had a workout with the Jets. If the Jets would have an injury or if their punter would just all of a sudden get the yips, I guess they would sign him. I think he's got a chance to land somewhere before his civil lawsuit is settled. He's refused to settle it. And one of the things I picked up from the HBO profile was that it seems like any settlement, as small as it would be, de minimis, as the league might say in its gambling policy, you know, if it's just nuisance value, if it's less money than you're going to spend to defend yourself all the way through to a verdict anyway, and $50,000, which I think is the number that we saw reported that he said no to. He'll spend less than $50,000 taking this thing all the way through to the end, most likely. If, if his lawyer's doing it right, he'll spend less than, he'll spend more than 50000 excuse me, taking this through to the end. One of the terms that he apparently would need to, to agree to is that he would waive any rights against the lawyer representing the alleged victim 
that Ariza has said he plans to sue for defamation and any other theories, much like what Dalvin Cook has done in the aftermath of claims that were made against him in 2021. So I here's the problem. With kickers and punters, there are too many out there. If you have any controversy, any issue, any problem whatsoever, it reminds me of when I was a kid. If I got into some issue at school, even if I was right, the fact that it was an issue was held against me. The fact that I got myself into a controversy, even if I was clearly within the right, I had done something wrong. And I think when the NFL looks at kickers and punters, they would rather have a guy that has no baggage, no questions, no concerns, no PR negativity, even if he's fully in the right, even if he's been railroaded, even if this is all fraudulent and fake and made up and he's going to be vindicated, it's just not something that we want to deal with. And if teams feel that way, hopefully at the end of the day, he'll have the kind of clear vindication that would allow them to say, we're going to judge this guy based on merit because we have the piece of paper that says this guy was wrongfully accused. If that's the truth, I don't know what the truth is. That's part of what they're figuring out. All right. Uh, Last one. This is the longest edition of PFTPM possibly ever, although we've probably had some longer ones in the past. WGON-TV, is Kirk Cousins in Minnesota next year, even if he is adequate or great in 2023? Well, those are two pretty different assessments. I don't know what adequate means. I think that the Vikings have already decided he is not the franchise quarterback they're looking for over the long term. If they had made that decision, he would already be under contract beyond 2023. Paul Allen and I have argued about that. The mere fact that he's in a position to become a free agent after the season and walk away to whoever he would want to sign with tells me the Vikings look at him and say, this isn't the guy. I think the Vikings top priority, like any other team that doesn't currently have one of the best five quarterbacks in the NFL is to find that year in and year out Fran Tarkenton. And they haven't had a franchise quarterback, a true franchise quarterback since Fran Tarkenton. Dante Culpepper was on his way. He had a spectacular 2004 season. 2005, he suffered that torn knee ligament trifecta in Carolina, and that was that. They've had other guys that had flashes. Brett Favre, for example. Tommy Kramer. Wade Wilson. Randall Cunningham. But they haven't had that year in and year out franchise quarterback, and that's what they're trying to find. And that's why I think they're kind of consciously taking a step back this year in the hopes of positioning themselves to maybe get Caleb Williams or someone else who would be a franchise guy and to have him for 10, 15 years or more. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. That's it for today's PFTPM. We'll be back on Friday to wrap up the week. And then next week, as I said, we're going to play it by ear. I'm going to be at the beach, undisclosed location. I'm going to take this little microphone around that I know it, it bothers some of you out there with the, the green and the red and the blue. It's green and red. It's Christmassy. So I'm sorry. It's either that or nothing at all. And for those of you who prefer nothing at all, all you have to do is not watch. But thank you for watching. We'll see you again here tomorrow. 
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.